Welcome to The Accelerators. Here for you are a series of tried and tested and proven real world ideas to help you create and enjoy a business and a life of choice. The Accelerators, because success loves speed. And now we come to the guest interview of the month. And my guest today is Joel Barker, known as the Paradigm Man. Joel Barker was the first person to popularize the concept of paradigm shifts for the corporate world. He began his work in 1975 after spending a year on fellowship meeting and working with visionary thinkers in both North America and Europe. He discovered that the concept of paradigms, which at that time was sequestered within the scientific discussion, could explain revolutionary change in all areas of human endeavour. In 1985, he had built the case and corporations and nations were seeking his advice. In 1980, in addition to his work on paradigms, he began to focus on a second crucial component for organisations and individuals, the importance of vision. In 1986, he released his first videotape, Discovering the Future, The Business of Paradigms. I've seen it, by the way, and it's brilliant. By 1988, it was the best-selling business video in history. In 2001, he updated this film to include contemporary examples and a shortened version. It has been translated into 16 languages and continues to influence people all over the world. He then released The Power of Vision, which became a second bestseller translated into more than a dozen languages. His book on Paradigms, Future Edge, was listed as one of the most influential business books of that year, that's 1992, by the prestigious Library Journal. It's been used for more than a decade. Joel Barker has worked with organisations both for-profit and not-for-profit all over the world, as well as with nations including Singapore, Venezuela, Canada, Mexico and Peru. His honours include an honorary doctorate in visionary leadership and the Excellence in Education Award. Formerly director of the Futures Studies Department of the Science Museum of Minnesota from 1974 to 1978, Joel has spoken to more than one million people around the world and his films have been seen by more than 250 million people. His two most quoted phrases are, you can and should shape your own future because if you don't, someone else surely will. And for leaders, no one will thank you for taking care of the present if you have neglected the future. I know you'll be fascinated by Joel's explanation of paradigms in this first part of the interview and equally fascinated by his explanation and ideas on the five regions of the future, which he discusses in next month's interview section. So let's go to that first part now. Well, hello, Joel, and welcome to the Achievers Edge. Thank you for sparing the time to be with me today. My pleasure, Peter. Thank you. Joel, I first came across you and your work when I saw your video, Discovering the Future, the Business of Paradigms, which I really enjoyed, by the way, particularly the card trick. (laughs) Can we start by talking about paradigms? What is a paradigm? Well, Peter, a paradigm is a uh, system of rules and regulations. Sometimes they're written down, sometimes they're not. doesn't make any difference. But those rules do two things. First, they define boundaries or limits. And second, they tell you how to behave inside those limits to achieve some measure of success. If you take the simplest model of a paradigm, it's a game. You know, any game we play has boundaries, right? So right now we've got the world soccer thing going on there. The soccer field is the boundaries. And if you turned that, by the way, into a round field instead of a square field, it would make a big difference. Sure would. And then there are rules inside those boundaries on how to achieve success. The problem-solving effort in soccer is to get the ball in the goal, right? Sure. Well, in business, it's the same thing. We have industrial boundaries. We have market boundaries. We have limits in terms of what we can and cannot do in terms of legal limits or moral limits. And then inside those boundaries or limits, we have rules that tell us how to produce cars or how to make computer chips or how to sell soap. 
And those are, in fact, the operating rules for success to help us solve problems. The problems are getting good cars into the hands of customers, as one example, or getting soap that washes well into the hands of the soap-buying customer. And so it turns out paradigms are behind almost everything humans do. They are fundamental. They are, without exception, necessary. You can't really live the good life. You can't really live a sensible life at all without paradigms. And presumably some of those paradigms are self-imposed. All of them are. Right. Because you, as a human being, have to say, I will accept these limits and play this game, or I won't. And so they're all a matter of some kind of choice. In other words, when it's legal, we have outlaws, don't we? We have criminals who say, I won't accept those limits. I won't accept those boundaries. Of course. So, yeah, paradigms are very human in a sense that we have to abide by them, at least within the cultural, legal ones. There are physical boundaries, scientific boundaries. You know, chemistry, biology, physics have their paradigms. And those, whether we like it or not, we have to live by them. Most certainly. You use the expression in the video, paradigm paralysis. Can you explain that for me and give me some examples? Yeah, paradigm paralysis is what keeps us from seeing what's new in the world. And even worse, keeps us from acting about that newness. And a good example was that if you take a look, in almost every case, the dominant industry in the old paradigm never becomes the dominant industry in the new paradigm. And just a couple of examples vacuum tubes. All the vacuum tube manufacturers, not one of them became a transistor or a chip maker. In fact, the transistor makers had trouble going to chips, but at least that was in the same paradigm. Sure. Computer chips are small transistors. If you take a look at the piston-powered airplane and the piston engines, none of those guys who were building piston engines ended up building jet engines. And, in fact, Rolls-Royce may be the only exception to that rule, where Rolls-Royce did build piston engines and then has turned out to be a great builder of turbine engines. So we can find exceptions every once in a while, but on the whole, paradigm paralysis getting stuck in your old rules and not having the capacity to move out of those old rules to accept the new rules. Understand. One of the examples that I've mentioned to other people having seen the video, which I thought was just so powerful, was the failure of the Swiss watch industry to patent the quartz crystal watch, letting Seiko and Texas Instruments grab it. Do you have any more recent examples of paradigm paralysis that are as powerful as the Swiss watch one? Well, yes. In fact, this one, everybody I identify with. We had analog cell phones, remember? Yep. And do you remember who was the world-dominating company in analog cell phones? Motorola. Motorola, right. Motorola had 50-plus percent of the world market share in analog cell phones. Well, along came digital cell phones. Who ended up with the majority share? Nokia. Nokia. Nokia was a trivial little company in Finland. In fact, most people thought they were Japanese because of the name. Oh, right. And so here we have, just recently, a perfect example. By the way, another example where money saved their... Derriere was Microsoft and the Internet. As late as 1994, Bill Gates said, the Internet is really irrelevant to Microsoft's business. We really are not going to pay any attention to that. Did he really? Yeah, oh, yeah, Fortune magazine. And, of course, what we now know is he almost lost the leverage that Microsoft had with that one bad decision. Luckily, they had a couple of extra 30 or $40 billion that they could spend their way back into the marketplace and finally did achieve a significant position in it with their internet browser. Sort of helpful to have that behind you, isn't it? 
Yeah. <laughs> Money sometimes helps, sometimes doesn't make a bit of difference. Yeah, absolutely. You can't buy your way out. Look what Toyota did to General Motors with the paradigm shift in total quality. General Motors have got more money than they know what to do with $30 billion, I think, on reserve right now, and it hasn't helped them at all. And was that driven by the work of W. Edwards Deming at the end of the Second World War? Well, actually, the United States used it extensively throughout the second half of the war so that when we rolled those Mustangs out, they fired up, they took off, and they flew. And after the war... The United States said, oh, we don't need to do that because everything we make, no matter how bad it is, gets bought. And so the whole quality movement gained no leverage in the United States because we didn't need it. All our manufacturers were doing fine without it. It was the Japanese, by the way, classic outsider. Remember, this is one of the stories about paradigms. The paradigms are brought to you by someone who doesn't know your business. Well, here's a gaijin saying to the Japanese CEOs, I will not come to Japan unless every CEO is in the room at the same time. You know, I mean, talk about an imperial attitude. Yeah. They all were there. He told them what they could do to, in fact, play on the world stage. And the real problem was there was a shortage of engineers. They did not have the engineers they thought necessary. And Demi said, you don't need engineers. You need well-trained technicians and line people. And the end result, of course, is that Toyota now dominates the world in automobiles when General Motors and Ford and Chrysler could have had access to that. In fact, they did have access to that information. They ignored him until they got beat up by Toyota. This is when he implemented what I remember as being PICA, Plan, Implement, Check, and Action? Yes, that's part of his theme. And, you know, you can Google Ed Deming and get a million hits. He's that important. So he changed the world. He changed the world with a paradigm that said everybody can have access to quality. It's not something just the rich get. Understand. Now, from reading in your book, Sam, and watching the video, you mentioned Thomas Kuhn and his work and the fact that it may have sparked your original thoughts on paradigms. Yeah. How have you expanded on Thomas Kuhn's work and thoughts? I want to say a couple things about Thomas Kuhn. First, give him credit, because he was the one who saw as a young physicist turned scientific historian, by the way, coming from the outside in. Yes. He was looking at science and saying, you know, this story about standing on the shoulders of one another, I don't see it. What I see is internecine battles between theories, and the one who wins gets to play the game. And so he, he defined paradigms in a very pure sense in science. But one thing he didn't understand, in fact, initially he was pretty nasty to me because I said to him in a series of, of articles I wrote, that Thomas Kuhn's theory is much larger than science. And the way I proved that was I took his own book with his own example, the card deck example, which you have seen, you know, which I have built into the film, and I said, here is Dr. Kuhn illustrating the power of a paradigm, not with a scientific example, but with a cultural example. This is not a scientific experiment he's showing us. He's just showing us things that we've learned in culture and showing that our expectations about what we want to see or expect to see control what we will see. So the importance of Thomas Kuhn is he proved the power of paradigms and how they influence scientists who, for all intents and purposes, claim objectivity. And he said they're not as objective as you think they are because the paradigms filter their ability to see. And so that was his great gift. What I was able to do is expand his work into business and culture and prove it. And then I was the one who articulated the going back to zero rule, which is the Swiss watch story that you were telling about. He didn't ever take it that far because he was more interested in the other part of the theory. 
I saw a conclusion that he didn't draw, which was when a paradigm shifts, everyone goes back to zero. And just because you were big in the old paradigm means nothing in the new. Another example, by the way, I'm sorry I'm giving all these North American examples, though Nokia was European, is uh, Sam Walton in Walmart. Sears was the dominant retailer when he started. He started in the rural areas, which they had abandoned. They looked at him and laughed that he would be so stupid is to try and play the retail game out in the rural hinterland. See, different boundaries, totally different boundaries. And, of course, we know the rest of the story. So going back to zero is literally what happens when a paradigm shifts. And if you're not agile, if you're not adaptable as a company, you can be left behind. One more example, and if I'm talking too much, by the way, just cut me off. But Philips, a European company, has announced that they are building the first LED light bulb plant in the world. That means they are pioneering a huge paradigm shift in illumination. And if they are successful, and I have every reason to believe they will, they will, if GE doesn't move very rapidly, become the dominant illumination company in the world. This is all absolutely fascinating stuff, Joel. I really appreciate you spending this amount of time. If we're to be in your words, paradigm pioneers, or at the verge, as you now describe it in the Five Regions book, which we'll move on to in a moment. How do we do that? Actually, those are two different things. Are they? Right. Yes. So let's take them separately. Paradigm pioneering is actually easy to do. The key is you must stay connected beyond your industry. Because remember, the place that you are most likely to see your new paradigm develop is at the edge of your paradigm. I know it's very far from the center of competition or from an outsider, from someone who really doesn't know your business. So if you want to be a pioneer, what you're looking for, and it's actually very simple, you look for people messing around with your rules. Now, that sounds like I'm being casual about that, but I literally mean that. They are messing around. They are playing. They are doing weird things with your rules and your products and your ideas. They are adapting them in funny ways, and typically they are adapting them to meet a need they have that you never even thought about. So paradigm pioneering, read outside your boundaries, go to meetings outside your industry, and watch for people that are messing around with the basic rules of your paradigm. That dramatically increases your ability to see early on. Now, notice the deal is you're not inventing them yourself. You're not discovering them themselves. You're discovering the person who discovers them. The other thing I say is when somebody walks into your office and starts to talk to you about how to solve a problem you know cannot be solved, then that's another person you listen very, very carefully to that person because they are likely trying to change your paradigm. So paradigm pioneering is very much about listening and watching and monitoring what's going on in the world. I actually have a process. I call it TIPS teams. TIPS stands for Trends, Innovations, and Paradigm Shifts. And when I go to corporations, I set up TIPS teams so that they literally have several hundred people spending not very much time, maybe an hour a week, not even that sometimes, looking outside the boundaries of their organization to see where there might be a paradigm shift occurring. What a good idea. Now, second thing, a verge is a different thing. In fact, I'm working on a film right now called uh, Innovation at the Verge. And the basic theory there, which comes from ecology, by the way, is really interesting. I've been reading ecological research for almost 10 years now. And again and again, these ideas come out of ecologists that just change everything about our 
assumptions about the business model, and this is one of these. Is this where a verge is the meeting of two ecosystems? Yeah, but there's a simpler definition. It's where something and something different meet. So for an ecosystem, it's a seashore and an ocean or a prairie and a forest or a forest and a swamp. The key is it's the edge where the differences come together. Now, in ecosystems, there's not much overlap. It's kind of like the forest stays the forest and the prairie stays the prairie, and sometimes they'll try a little invading here and there. But, you know, if you come to Minnesota, we have a place called uh, Cedar Creek Research Center. It's one of the few places in the world three ecological systems meet, so we have a, a triple verge. Now, here's why verges are important. It turns out that when you check Mother Nature and you say, where does Mother Nature do her most creative innovation? In other words, if you're going to look somewhere in an ecosystem for the highest rate of radical innovation, where would you look? And if you take a business person's position on this, which is the survival of the fittest, which isn't Darwinian, by the way, it's Spencerian. Spencer said survival of the fittest. Darwin basically said survival of the fit. Anyway, the classic answer would be where the competition is highest, you'll have the most innovation. It turns out that that's false. The true answer is where competition is the highest, you'll have the most incremental innovation. Because when you have a very high level of competition, you can't try radical innovation because it's so different that if it fails, you get eaten. That's insightful. I like that. Where you have high competition, you do little changes because you can back up to your previous position safely after trying that little thing. So it turns out radical innovation in nature is done at the verge. And the reason for that is, number one, it's the safest place you can be because it's farthest away from the competition. So if you mess up, you don't get eaten. Number two, you are right alongside a novel environment that triggers you to try things you wouldn't otherwise try. And if I may, can I give you an example? Please do. Okay. Apple iPod. What was Apple's ecosystem? Computers. What did it bump up against? the music industry. Steve Jobs looked over at the music industry and said, you know, if I adapt some of my skills, some of my, quotes DNA in an appropriate way, I could actually make a foray into that ecosystem and access resources over there that I'm not now accessing. Now, what's interesting is if you look at that, they took the micro disk, which is from the computer side, they wrote iTunes software, so as actually this is where the crossover begins because it was great software designed specifically for music. And then Steve Jobs took one more thing. He took his reputation over to that ecosystem and said to the Eagles and to U2 and some of the other great bands who said, we will never have our music on the Internet. And he said, I will protect your music so that you can make more money and reach more people and still protect your copyrights. End result, a huge new product in a totally different ecosystem. Now, who should have had that? Sony. Oh, yes. It should have been the development of the Walkman. Exactly. They should have been the one announcing this, but where were they competing? In the center of the ecosystem where only incremental innovation was the smart thing to do. So this is what I mean when I, the innovation at the verge is very different than paradigm pioneering. So can I just summarize this in my own mind as an expression that's coming to me is you never learn to swim if you live in the middle of the forest. Yeah, <laughs> this is true. That's exactly right. And you never learn to climb a mountain if you're always at the seashore. 
you have to have that outsider's experience. And see, notice it works with the paradigm stuff perfectly, doesn't it? It does. Jobs was an outsider. Yeah, very much. I mean, one of your most quoted expressions is you can and should shape your own future because if you don't, someone else surely will. And this really is exactly what you're talking about now. Yeah, Nokia shaped Motorola's future. Steve Jobs shaped Sony's future. And it's because both of those companies were too tied into the dominant paradigm to say, and what would a new set of rules and a new set of bounds, you know, what would it look like if we changed all the rules? By the way, Motorola, AT&T told Motorola they're going to be putting up a digital cell network and asked Motorola to build them a digital phone, and Motorola wouldn't do it. And the reason they wouldn't do it was because they couldn't get the voice to sound as good as the analog voice, and they didn't want to injure their quality reputation. Stuck in a paradigm, Joe, weren't they? (laughs) Yeah. What I'm most pleased about my paradigm theory is it just gets reinforced if you look at anything. It wasn't a fad, and it wasn't just a silly little idea. No, it wasn't. It's an important idea that if you hold it as a leader or a technologist, if you can grasp how important it is, you can really avoid getting stung. What is impossible to do in your field or in your business or in your work, but if you could do it, would fundamentally change it for the better. There's a converse, which I didn't put in my book, which is would fundamentally change it for the worse. Either gets you to a new paradigm, but I wanted to do it on the positive side. See, if you do it the other way, it's what'll kill me. <laughs> yes. That's kind of like the going back to zero rule. But the impossibility question is a really important question to ask on a regular basis. What's impossible to do, but if we could do it, would fundamentally change your business for the better. Now you at least have a focal point on things to watch for. Let me give you an example. I was working with a tool die company. They made the very hard edges that you'd put on a lathe to cut metal to produce products. And this was like in 1990, I asked them the question, what's impossible to do, but if you could do it, would fundamentally change your business for the better? And they said, to be able to produce products at a net zero. And I said, what does that mean? It means we don't have to trim it or shape it. Right. Since all their blades, all their cutting equipment was to trim or shape a crude piece down to its final piece, They said that would change everything, but of course that's impossible. Well, now we have 3D stereolithographic manufacturing in which we produce the product at net zero one tiny layer at a time using, by the way, the equivalent of ink jet technology, except instead of ink coming out, it's metal coming out. I read about this in five regions of the future. Yeah, yes, you did. It's a universal tech. Remember, we put that into universal technology. Yes, I do remember. Well, that put many of the companies like that company I worked with back to zero. And none of them, as far as I know, ever developed the 3D lithographic technology before they went out of business. If you've enjoyed our session today, why not head over to our website where we have loads of resources on product creation, on sales, on marketing, and of course, on personal success. That's at theaccelerators.club.com. I'll see you there.